0: So my first Christmas that I was married to my wife Heather was a complete disaster for Heather. And it was my fault. I, we were living in an apartment, we'd just gotten married earlier that summer, and I was like trying to get her into a house before Christmas. And so I bought this house, um, but it didn't have a working stove. And so I'm like, you know what? You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna buy a stove for Heather. So we get the stove, and then I realize this is like a day before Christmas, and I realized I have to attach it. So you know, I'm like, I don't want to pay an electrician. And who's going to be, who's, what electrician is there going to be on Christmas Eve? That's not going to work. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do it myself. So I went to turn the breaker off for the 220 volts that powers the range. Turned off the wrong breaker. So, I, I you know, and I'm like, I'm messing with wires and stuff. And I just barely avoided murdering myself. And there was this huge explosion. Pow, smoke comes up. And along with the electrical fire, our Christmas dreams went up. In smoke. So it was my, my wife's first Christmas away from her family. My family was in town. She's in a strange place with strange people. And if you know my family, they're strange people. And, um, and now we can't cook a Christmas meal. So we're, my parents are like, it's okay. We'll go out to, we'll find some place that's open. So my parents are like, you know, McCormick and Schmick's is open, which is a seafood restaurant. And my wife does not eat anything that even touches the water. Like if a cow has waded into a pool, she's not eating it. And so her, Christmas, her first Christmas, married with me, was away from her family, no home-cooked, home-cooked food in a seafood restaurant, complete disaster. Everybody around my wife was, was having a wonderful, incredible Christmas. She was trying to put on a brave face, but it was the worst Christmas of all time for her. Okay. Christmas is one of these times when what everybody is feeling on the outside doesn't always match what's happening on the inside. And some Christmases for you are great, and some are amazing, and sometimes... Sometimes everybody else is having a good time and you're heartbroken. Christmas is a time when um, it's easy to get discouraged because things are missing from your life or they're gone from your life or people are gone from your life. It could be a time when you're waiting on God's blessings in your life and that kind of rushes back to the forefront of your life. Christmas is a time when you can be wondering, God, where's the family that I've been longing for for so long? I'm still on my own. I still have the pathetic Snoopy Christmas tree, you know, with like the one stick coming out of the book. Like, where's the family that I long for? It could be about the success that seems so elusive. And every time you go back to see your parents, they remind you of the fact that you're not quite successful yet. It could be that you're waiting on success. It could be that you feel incredibly lonely. This city is hard to live in long term. I don't know if you've noticed that. But this city can be challenging to live in long term. That's right. And part of it is, I mean, we all have to take the tea, right? So we understand there's suffering involved in living in the city. Um, and by the way, snow is coming, so the tea will be shutting down soon. Um, you know, a lot of that can actually be a very lonely feeling because you're kind of living alone on the city. or away from family. Some of it can be the anxiety that we constantly feel and that gets amplified around the holidays. In my family, there's this weird pattern of brokenness where people people get just angry and kind of blow up around the holidays. There's just some brokenness that comes out around the holidays. For some of us, we're just waiting on God, waiting on God to heal depression, waiting on God to help us overcome these destructive habits in your life. I don't know if you've ever been in that cycle where you you keep sinning and you're like, you know, I want to overcome this. I don't want this in my life anymore. So how can it be that I don't want it, but I keep doing it? How does that work? God, help me out here. I thought you would help me already. Where are you? And you're waiting on God to help you with that. It could be that there's just some people missing from your life, right? That, that's something that happens at the holidays and at Christmas. And you start celebrating and, um, you know, there's just a hole there where somebody used to be. And so everyone might be smiling and talking, and you smile along too, but in the back of your mind, you're wondering, is God going to come through for me? You're waiting on God. Well, I don't want you to miss this about the very first Christmas when Jesus was born. The people in the first Christmas story were all waiting on God too, every one of them, and Jesus crashes into the middle of their story. And when he does, it's joy, it's celebration, it's awe, and it's wonder, it's all those things. But it was also proof that God keeps his promises for a bunch of people who were waiting. And Jesus is still proof that God keeps his promises, even when our darkness seems very dark indeed. You know, when you look at the Christmas story with Mary and Joseph in the manger, the angels, the wise men, if you don't know it, you can come to the live nativity on Saturday, you'll get a good picture, you know, when, when those people in the story were finding out what was happening, the Christmas story for them didn't start with a manger or an announcement from an angel. For them, it started with a promise that was 2,000 years old to them. They had been waiting for 2,000 years for God to keep a very big promise. And So I, when I say they were waiting, they were seriously waiting. We get a, a hint of this from uh, the gospel writer Luke. Luke uh, wrote one of the four Gospels of Jesus' life. Gospels are the authorized biographies of Jesus' life. And Luke writes the the longest account of Jesus' birth. And so Matthew has a little bit of Jesus' birth. Luke has the most about Jesus' birth. Now, Luke was a doctor, a researcher, and a a historian. And we get a glimpse as to why Luke includes um, this birth narrative about Jesus. The most likely reason is because he spoke with Mary. He says in his gospel when he writes it that he thoroughly researched everything about Jesus' life and he specifically says that he talked to the eyewitnesses that he interviewed the eyewitnesses of the events of Jesus' life. And we know that Luke visited the two places that Mary is said to have lived after Jesus died. She lived in Jerusalem and in Ephesus, near Ephesus, a little bit outside the city. And we know that Luke was in Jerusalem in Ephesus and he researched everything. And so it doesn't take much historical imagination. It doesn't take a great leap of logic or faith to understand that Luke probably interviewed Mary directly. And that's why he includes all this information that the other gospel writers don't. In fact, this would also explain this very strange note in the earliest, uh, in, the, in the narratives about Jesus' birth, which is in your handout today, if you want to take it out, it's not on the screens, where um, it's not in your notes, you're going to have to listen closely. Um, Luke 2.19 says this, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. So if if you know anything about ancient literature, and some people do, a lot of people don't, this is not the kind of statement you often find in ancient literature, which deals with the interior life and how people were thinking and processing emotions while these events were unfolding. And so the most likely reason for why you get these sort of intimate comments on what Mary was thinking and feeling during the birth narrative of Jesus is because Luke interviewed Mary and Mary said, and I was thinking about and pondering all of these things in my heart as they were happening. And so this makes the most sense. So um, Luke records what Mary says about the baby to be born, and Mary, as she is ha- she's carrying this baby Jesus, um, she breaks into something that Jacob read earlier called the Magnificat, which is something like a song or a poem. The first word in Latin is Magnificat, which is why it's called that. You know, it's something that we might call prophecy. The Bible doesn't call it that. That that might be a very strange word to modern ears, but it's sort of divinely inspired speech that just kind of pours forth because God wants to say something through a person. And you might think, well, that doesn't happen. That's strange, right? But it's like we're talking about the virgin birth of God. So strange things are happening. And I think it's important to notice as we look back on these stories, this was strange for them too. Right? Mary wasn't like, man, you know, it's Thursday, so an angel's going to show up and talk to me. Like that, that wasn't happening. You know, she wasn't like, you know, hey, listen, you know, last month I just I just pronounced a prophetic poem. It's like that's not normal. It wasn't normal for them either. The reason it's recorded is because it was so strange, so abnormal, and the gospel writers were not trying to communicate myths about something that might have happened. Everything they're writing is trying to communicate that something. Just something bizarre has happened in history. It actually happened. We're trying to wrap our minds around what happened. And so as we look at these words that pour forth from Mary, you know, it's like we're trying to understand what happened here where there's angels and people are going mute and then they're talking again and people are just spontaneously saying things about this baby. And here's what Mary says. And when she talks about Jesus, she references this 2,000-year-old promise now, I'm not reading the whole Magnificat again. We read it earlier in the service, but listen to the very end of it. It's Luke 1, through 55, and I'm looking at your teaching notes, so I know this one's in there. It says, uh, speaking of God, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Now, I want you to circle two words in your notes. I want you to circle remembering, and I want you to circle promise. You see, the way that Mary's thinking about the birth of Jesus is that God is fulfilling a 2,000-year-old promise to Abraham, a huge promise. It's a promise that almost everybody else has even, has has just forgotten about or maybe given up on, but not Mary. This promise that God made to Abraham, I want to share it with you today, and it's going to be, there's a lot of Bible today, but in the end, we're going to try to make it a little bit practical for you. Here's the promise to Abraham. It's in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and it has three components. Now, this isn't a promise in the Bible. This is like the promise of the Bible. And if you want to understand how the whole Bible unfolds, you have to understand this promise. Now, it's just hard to overcommunicate the importance of this promise to the narrative line of Scripture. But what happens is, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world. Genesis 3, the world breaks Genesis 3 through 11, the world just keeps breaking and things keep falling apart and bigger and bigger, like the effects of sin ripple outward. Genesis 12, God starts to put the whole world back together and he does it by this promise. And so the rest of the Bible is this uh, this promise unfolding throughout a couple thousand years. And here's the promise God makes to Abraham to put the whole world back together. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the the whole world seems like it's cursed because of sin, and now God wants to bless the whole world, right? Blessing is the opposite of cursing. God wants to undo all of that through Abraham. This promise that he makes to Abraham has three components. And if you want to be an informed reader of the Bible, you need to write these down because they show up everywhere in the Bible. Here's the three components. We have a slide for it: land, seed, and blessing. God promises Abraham a land. It, uh, sometimes, whenever the Bible talks about inheritance, because that's that's a word, when it talks about an heir or inheritance, it's talking about receiving this promised land from God because in that ancient civilization, mostly, most of what you're inheriting is not possessions and things. It's the land of your family. When, it, when the Bible talks about seed, it means offspring, right? Seed is sort of like a euphemism. It's, it's something like offspring. It's children. And then lastly, blessing. And that means all kinds of blessing. So it could be material blessing, but it's so much bigger than that too, right? Like To, to, to condense it down to material blessing is way too narrow, but it, it includes that. So God promises Abraham land, seed, and blessing, and if you look at the very end of Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it says, through him, everyone in the world will be blessed. I mean, think about the size of that promise. It's not just that Abraham will be blessed. It's that every family, every nation in the world is going to be blessed through Abraham. It's a huge promise. Okay. According to Mary, this promise to Abraham is being fulfilled through Jesus. So... From the perspective, now, now here's why that's a big deal, because from the perspective of Mary and everyone else during the time of Jesus, it looked like God had forgotten his promise to Abraham. Israel had been ruled for, during the time of Mary. Israel had been ruled uh, for the past 35 years by a genocidal egomaniac named Herod the Great. Herod the Great is best known for killing his own family members. He would have them executed so that he could stay in power. I looked up all the people Herod had executed, and there's a lot of them that I'm not about to list here because I could, he killed so many, I couldn't figure out how they were all related to him. Here's just some of the people he killed. Uh, he, he, uh, he executed his brother-in-law. He executed his favorite wife. There's a joke in there. I just don't know what it is, and I don't want to get in trouble like it's the holidays, so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Okay. Herod killed three of his sons. One of them was a few days before he died. Because his son thought Herod had died. And so he started yelling to the, to the jailer and tried to bribe the jailer just to let him out of prison because he thought his dad had died. And when Herod found out that his son had tried to get out of jail, he said, no, kill him now. And then he died a few days later. Herod once locked um, all of the wise men and the leading people. He ordered that they would be locked inside of a, like an arena. And then when Herod died, he wanted all of them murdered because he thought that the people were going to celebrate when he died. And he wanted to make sure people mourned when he died. So he was going to have them all mur- murdered. But the order wasn't carried out. Maybe because Herod was dead. So, in other words, Herod was a genocidal maniac who killed all of his people. Uh, Caesar Augustus was a good friend of Herod, and he reportedly said of Herod, who was Jewish, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. Now, that was just the last 35 years Uh, that Mary had been living. Before Herod, in 64 BC, the the Roman general Pompey sieged Jerusalem, broke through the gates, killed 12,000 men, women, and children in a single day. And after that, he walked into the temple, and then he walked into the Holy of Holies and took a look around. Before that, about 100 years before, in 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes IV put a stop in Jerusalem to all sacrifices, all Sabbath, and all circumcision. Then he brought a pig into the temple, an unclean animal, and slaughtered it in worship of Zeus, in the Jerusalem temple. If you go further back than that, things don't get much better. The nation of Israel was at the crossroads of the world in Palestine, and they were variously conquered, enslaved, deported, and killed by the Persians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Phoenicians. They often paid tribute. Their first temple was torn down. The walls of Jerusalem were destroyed. And really, when you look at it as a historian... The heyday of Israel had been a very, very short period of time during King David and maybe two or three kings after him. It was like David and Solomon, and then it just all falls apart. So, how long is that? It's about 100 years. So, there was, there was a very short heyday, and then after that, there's nothing. The history of Israel is like a blip of the promises of Abraham, of land, of seed, of blessing. And after that, it's all being tossed around by major world powers and empires. That's if you look at the history of history, the history of Israel through the eyes of a historian. But Mary was looking at Israel through the eyes of faith. She did not waver in her confidence because she believed God always keeps his promises, no matter how bleak it looks. Moved by the Holy Spirit, Mary proclaimed that this child to be born was proof that God was keeping his promise. To Mary, she could see Jesus is proof that God keeps his promises. I don't know what you've been waiting for in your life. There's a few things I'm still waiting for. But whatever you're waiting for, you probably haven't been waiting for it for 2,000 years. And however dark it might be in your life, and I've talked to people in our church whose life is very, very dark. You know, it probably has not yet achieved this level of suffering, but for Mary in faith, when, when Jesus is coming, when Jesus is born, she sees God keeping a promise. So Mary believed God was keeping his promise, and then Jesus had to deliver on the promise. And that is a theme, a strong theme of the earliest church writings collected in the Bible, that Jesus fulfills God's promises to Abraham. I want to take a look real quick at how I'm going to give you a bunch of verses about how Jesus actually does fulfill these promises that God made to Abraham. And then we're going to talk practically a little bit about how you wait well when you're waiting on God. So let's look at how Jesus is proof that God's keeping his promise to Abraham. The first promise is land. According to Hebrews 11.10, it says, Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. In other words, the the inheritance of land that Abraham was looking forward to was not just physical land, but there's something spiritual about it as well. There's a spiritual inheritance that's coming to Abraham, an eternal inheritance. That's what it means that it's architect and builder is God. Something that's really helpful for you to know, this was incredibly helpful for me when I learned this, is that prophecies in the Bible skip like a stone across the water. So the the promise to Abraham that he would inherit land is actually fulfilled with, with literal land, but then it's picked up and carried further by God and expanded beyond anything Abraham could have ever imagined. When Abraham heard that promise, surely he thought land. But as his vision of God grew, he began to, see, he was, he began to long for something more than land for this city whose architect and builder is God, and it becomes this expanded promise that's not just for Abraham, but it's for the whole world. Here's another, um, here's another verse that shows us that Jesus gives us the land promised to Abraham, Galatians 3.29. This is our memory verse for today. It says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. In other words, you're that offspring promised to Abraham. And instead of being a blood descendant of Abraham, you're a faith descendant of Abraham. The blood that connects you to Abraham is the blood of Jesus instead of the blood in your veins. And then what does it say, if that's true of you, that you are heirs according to the promise. Underline that word heirs. What's it talking about? You are receiving an inheritance. That land that was promised to Abraham is coming to you. And think about this. What did Jesus say? The meek shall inherit what? The earth. Guess how you translate that literally? The meek shall inherit the land, the promise of Abraham, right? That this whole, this whole earth, this whole world, this, all this land that was promised to Abraham is coming by faith to all those that put their trust in Christ. So through Jesus, there is a land promise to those that have faith in him. Now, what about the second part of the promise seed? Jesus fulfills this promise as well. Uh, Genesis 3.16. Oh, that's not Genesis. It's Galatians 3.16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but, to, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Here the Bible is, is making this point that Abraham was promised a descendants, and that their descendants would be a blessing to the whole world. And you say, like, how does that happen? Well, the descendant of Abraham through whom blessing comes is Jesus. That Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. Jesus is the promised descendant of Abraham. And then all who are united to him in faith are now offspring of Abraham as well. And lastly, blessing, Abraham's promised blessing. Ephesians 1, 3 talks about the blessings that we receive in Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Circle that phrase, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Like how does all the blessing come to you? Through Jesus, the seed of Abraham. And then the blessings you receive are not just material blessings, but they're, they're wildly expanded. Because I, 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 was, I was reflecting on this, actually, in my own uh, time with the Lord, reading Ephesians 1 this week, and it says that we get every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, and I can't even understand that. Like I, I wrote in my notes, I was like, aren't there some blessings in the spiritual realms that are just for, for angels or something like that? Like how do, but, but according to this, it's like every blessing there is to receive in the spiritual realms is for those who are in Jesus. And the rest of Ephesians here, uh, this is um, in your notes, kind of walks through this. It says, he chose us in, in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So holiness and blamelessness are some of the blessings that you receive in Jesus. You remember how we talked about there are sins in your life that you're like, man, I wish I could quit that, but I can't, so how does that work? Well, apparently, the way that you're made holy is by being united to Jesus. You're, you're united to someone who is holy and he helps you become holy. Then it says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, so we're adopted into God's family. That's a blessing. You become a son or daughter of God in accordance with his pleasure or will to the praise of his glorious grace. We receive grace from God. He's freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Redemption is when you're set free. You're free in Jesus. You're not a slave to follow rules or regulations. You're not a slave to the law. You're free. It says we're redeemed through his blood, and then we have the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. You get get the slate wiped clean. You are forgiven. These are all blessings that God gives us through Jesus, through Christ, and so the land that was promised to Abraham, the seed that was promised to Abraham, the blessing that's promised to Abraham, all of that comes to us through Jesus. And so that's why Jesus is proof that God keeps his promises. Because everything God promised to Abraham 2,000 years ago, no matter how dark it looks, God is fulfilling all of that for us through Jesus. If Now, now like, that's a lot of Bible, right? That's a lot of history. But it's not just 2,000 years old. Because if God keeps his promises then that totally changes how you wait today, right? If you're, if you're anxious and uncertain, you just don't know, you know, if you're not sure that God's gonna come, come through for you, then, then you probably should be anxious about the things that are out of control in your life. But if you know that God keeps his promises, not just because you got a you just like, I got a good feeling about it, but because God sent his son Jesus 2,000 years ago, interrupted all of human history to prove that he keeps his promises, then you wait differently, You wait with peace. You wait with assurance. And so what I wanna do to close our message today is just talk about this. How do I wait on God? When times get tough and I'm waiting on God and I'm wondering, what do I actually do? You know, if I'm a a Christian, I believe that Jesus is proof that God keeps his promises, but how do I wait like Mary did? I came up with an acronym for uh, how we wait as Christians, and I thought this is what I came up with for what most how no, most of us normally wait. We whine, we ask God to fix it now. We issue ultimatums and tell God what to do. Is that how we normally wait? But if Jesus is proof that God keeps His promises, then you can wait with confidence. So let's look at how. Here's how we wait. Number one, we watch expectantly for God to move. You know, it's one thing to just kind of sit, and, sit around biding your time. It's another thing f- to be watching for the fulfillment of the promises. Psalm 135 through six says this, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. It's like, it's like the psalmist is sitting on the edge of his chair saying like, I know God's gonna move. I know God's gonna come through for me. I just need to have my eyes open for when it comes. And look at what it says next. And in his word, I put my hope. You know Why? See the connection there? Because when God makes promises in his word, then you can wait expectantly. And then it continues. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. So as sure as the watchman can count on the rising of the sun, I can count on God's promises when they're based on his word. I wait expectantly. You see, if God has fulfilled the greatest promise he's ever made through Jesus then what can't God do, and what won't God give me? If he's given me eternal life, forgiveness of my sins, adoption as his family, then there's no good thing God is holding back from you. The Bible says today is the day of his favor. And you may think, man, you know, I'm waiting on God's favor in my life, but when you're in Jesus, you can know this, that today is the day of his shaper, uh, favor, and in the hardest day of your life, he is shaping you and preparing you for heaven. So his blessings are for today, so you can watch expectantly for him. Here's the A. Ask God to shape my character. Um, the Bible is like, there are so many verses about this and there are passages in this about the Bible about how God shapes you while you wait. Um, there's some places where it's like, you know, God disciplines those whom he loves. If you've got kids and you love them, you wanna shape their character. Discipline's not about just punishing them for being bad. It's about shaping them into someone wise, to someone who's mature, someone who's full of wisdom instead of foolishness. God shapes us. Romans 5, 3 through 4 says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. I think, you know, how do you glory in your sufferings? That is a a concept that is so foreign to American Christianity. Why on earth would you glory in your sufferings? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character, hope. You want to get to that place in your life where you have that confident hope in Jesus that on the worst day of your life, you can still say, I know God's going to work it together for my good and for his glory. The way that you get to that kind of hope, saying, heaven is my inheritance and I'm living for that day, the way that you get to that hope is by suffering well. And I wish there was an easy way to learn this lesson, but here's something I've learned in my life just over the last couple years. There are some things you can only learn the hard way there are some things God can only work in you through suffering. And a confident hope is one of those things. I found a a quote online on Desiring God this week from an author named Jade Mazarin who says this, there's actually something happening while nothing is happening. God uses waiting to change us. And when you ask God to change your character, you're opening yourself up, saying, Holy Spirit, change me. Holy Spirit, produce something in me. And it opens your eyes to what God may wanna do in you. The I, how we wait on God. I immerse myself in God's promises. I immerse myself in God's promises. It's hard to rely on the promises of God if you don't know the promises of God. Just like the psalmist waited according to his word, for us as well, waiting means we have to be in his word and in his promises. Psalm 1, one through three puts it this way. It talks about the person who is blessed. It's the first psalm. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. You want to be blessed? You got to eliminate the people from your life that are going to to trip you up. And instead, you have to meditate on God's law and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted beside streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, they prosper. That's a person like a tree on a riverbank, and, and it's, they've, they've um, sent their roots way down deep into the stream so that they have water, they have nourishment, they have a source of life that other people maybe can't see. And when times of drought come and all the other trees lose their leaves, this is a person who still has green leaves and still produces fruit with their life because they have sunk their roots down deep into something underneath the ground. That's what it's like to meditate on God's law. That's what it's like to immerse yourself in God's promises, that you have, you have a source of power and of life that other people don't have. And so when the circumstances change and other people are wondering like, why isn't your life withering? Why aren't, you, why aren't you crushed underneath this weight? This is more than a person should be able to bear. It's like, I have sunk my roots down deep into the promises of God by meditating on his law and his word. That's where my strength comes from. You can only do that when you immerse yourself In his promises, and the last part of how we wait on God, T is trust God's plans even when they are confusing. And in this, I was I was just, in I was I was just overwhelmed by the way that Mary waited on God and her trust in God's plans. And we see this in um, not in the Magnificat, but in the earlier section when the angel comes to her and says, "Hey, you're going to be a you're going to be a single unwed mother." Luke one thirty five, the angel, and, and, and Mary's like, well, how's that going to happen? Because I haven't had sex with anybody. So valid question. How, does that, how is that going to work? And Luke one thirty five, the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that create more questions for you or less questions for you? It's a confusing plan. But what makes Mary a person of faith is here's her response. She says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. I wonder if you would answer like that or if I would answer like that. Great, let's make that happen. She trusts in God's plan even when they're incredibly confusing. I, I think not only of Mary... Um, who trust in God's plans when they are confusing. I also remember the cross, that the glory of the resurrection was preceded by the pain of the cross. And that's what Jesus had to go through. And so, you know, if you think God's love for you means you're not gonna suffer, I just don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Instead, trusting in God in the midst of your confusing circumstances It doesn't mean no suffering. It means God's power and his presence are with you in the confusion. It means his supernatural peace, which transcends understanding that that's with you in the confusion. It means that you know God's promises are for you in the middle of your hurt and your pain. That's what it means to trust his plans even when they are confusing. You know, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, you haven't crossed that line of faith, Maybe you're open to Christianity. Maybe you even grew up in a Christian home. You know, these promises of God are available to you through Jesus. They're not just arbitrary sort of promises that are floating out there. They all come to you through Jesus. And if you want to be able to wait with this kind of poise, this kind of resolve, this kind of trust, this kind of confident assurance and resoluteness in God, that comes through a relationship with Jesus. Without that, without crossing that line of faith and saying, I'm going to trust in you, those promises are not yet yours by faith. Faith is the thing that allows you to appropriate those promises and say, those aren't just promises of God, those are promises of God for me. And so if you haven't crossed that line of faith, you're missing out on God's promises for you. They're all available to you through Jesus who died on the the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and then he rose from the dead to defeat death so that those who turn from their sin and put their trust in him, follow him as the leader of their life, will have eternal life, will be saved. I wanna give you a chance to put your trust in him today. I don't want you to go to walk out of this room with your eternal status in jeopardy, with your inheritance in jeopardy. It's almost, like, it's almost like if you go meet with a lawyer and they say, hey, your uncle left you a huge inheritance. There's uh, millions of dollars are yours. He left it to you. All you have to do is sign this paper to receive it. And you just kind of walk out of the office like, well, you know, the offer's waiting. It's like, no, 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 no. Don't live in that in-between of like, it's mine, but I haven't taken hold of it and like, I don't know. Instead, come to him in faith and receive what God wants to give you the gift of eternal life through Christ. So, if you would, bow your head and close your eyes with me. I'm going to pray a prayer. You can follow along silently as I pray out loud, receiving this gift of faith in Jesus. Father, thank you for your promise to Abraham. I thank you that there is an eternal inheritance waiting. I thank you that you have, you let me become your child by faith. I thank you for the blessings that you give me in Jesus' name. God, I want to turn from my sin and follow Jesus. I need his forgiveness in my life. And I want to follow his leadership wherever it leads for the rest of my days. Father, come into my life and save me. Give me the gift of the Holy Spirit that I can live a holy life. And teach me to wait well, knowing and trusting that Jesus is my hope and my future. God, I need you in my life. And I'm so thankful that Jesus has died on the cross to make a way and raised from the dead so that I can have eternal life. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.